chapter 11 in your Bible, beginning in verse 2. Matthew chapter 11. We're in the second of a brief series entitled, Hurting on the Way to Heaven. We want to examine how to spiritually advance through life without letting the pain of life derail us. Years ago in North Korea, a school teacher told a little girl's class that they were going to play a fun game. She said there might be a special book their parents have in their home. She said if they have it, it might be hidden. So after your parents go to sleep, see if you can find this special book, and if you find it, bring it to school, and you will receive a special prize. Well, this little girl found her parents' special book. So did 13 other children. They were awarded bright red scarves, and the other students applauded as they were uh, paraded around the room by the teacher. So the little girl went home excited to tell her mother and father about the scarf, but she couldn't find her mother, and her father never came home. The next day, the police arrived. They took her away. She never saw her parents again. She never heard from her parents again. She wrote this story in the last days of her life. Many people suffer deeply. You and I have no way of being aware of the suffering of most people that exist in this world. In fact, we can't fully know the extent of the suffering of each other in this church. Proverbs says the heart knows its own bitterness. But when we do see the suffering of others and then we add it to our own, we can not only struggle to make sense of it, it can affect our faith and walk with Jesus. So look, if you would, at Matthew chapter 11. We're going to be turning to other passages this morning, but let's read Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. The Bible says, Now when John, and this is John the Baptist, Now when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Given time, suffering just grinds you down. It can cause your spirit to wither, your heart to become weak. You hang on to any glimmer of hope, even if it's not realistic, because you're desperate. And then when that hope is smashed, the Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. It is an incorrect view of Scripture to say that we can always understand what God is doing or how our suffering fits into His Word and His will. And these verses are a prime example. Verse 2 says John was imprisoned. Erase from your mind the picture of modern-day prisons. This was a fortress palace known as Masharus near the northeastern shore of the Dead Sea. It was a long way away from where John was preaching. It was a long way from where Jesus was. Now, we don't know where he was placed in this fortress, but verse 2 says he was imprisoned. Other verses say the same thing, and it was Herod Antipas that put him there. This is the same Herod who, a few years later, a year later actually, was part of the trial of Jesus. He and his soldiers mocked Jesus, and they sent him back to Pilate who crucified him. So more than likely, John is in a dungeon in this fortress. Using John as an example, I want us to consider three stages of suffering this morning and then look at a sound biblical response. Number one, the trials of suffering often occur because you have been victimized. And I want you to look over at Matthew chapter 14, just a couple chapters over. Matthew chapter 14. Some of you, many of you here this morning, 
at some point in your life have been victimized. It might have happened when you were growing up or in a marriage. Maybe it was in a workplace. It, it happened in what should have been a safe place. Maybe you were the victim of a crime or you were scorned and slandered for doing the biblical moral thing and that's the reason John was in jail. Matthew 14 goes into detail about Matthew 11. Herod was just another corrupt politician. He was having an affair with his brother's wife Herodias, uh, which is, of course, a problem. So John, being a preacher of God's word, rebuked him. Look at verse 4. John had been saying, it is not lawful for you to have her. Lawful probably refers to the seventh commandment, which says you shall not commit adultery. So he was probably preaching that to him. But that wasn't all. Luke chapter 3 says John reprimanded him, quote, because of all the wicked things which Herod had done. So look at verse 5. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. So he had a solution. He put him in this fortress prison far away from where the crowd was. All John did was exactly what God called him to do. He preached repentance. He didn't trim the edges of his word for anyone. He was obedient at every step, and as a result, he was victimized by a person who had power over him. So the trial of suffering can occur because you, being, you have been victimized. But number two, the trials of suffering can cause you to be stigmatized. And I want you to look at Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. In that chapter, John the Baptist is preaching in the desert. Every day, people came out to be baptized by him. It was a baptism of repentance, but many weren't sincere. So look at verse 7 in Luke chapter 3. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Now, there are other passages that say he said that to the Pharisees and Sadducees, but Luke says he said it to the crowd. And I don't think this was a short sermon. These are probably summary statements. He pointed out their self-righteousness. Look at verse 8. He said, produce fruit with repentance and do not begin to say, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, they thought God declared them as righteous and heaven was their destiny because they were Jews descended from Abraham. So next, he warned them about hell. Look at verse 9. He said, indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Modern day translation, he said to them, the wrath of God is upon you because you believe you're a good religious person and that you're deserving of heaven, but there's no spiritual fruit in your life. The judgment of God upon your wicked life is imminent and you're facing eternal damnation. Not every sermon is supposed to be delicate. <laughs> John laid it out truthfully and plainly in the manner and method which God desired. He pointed to Jesus as the Messiah, and as a result, he's in prison and he is going to die. So let's take what we know about human nature and let's use our imagination and let's just wonder what some of the people who heard John preach might have been saying or at least thinking when they heard John was in prison. Hmm. 
John, you're not so cocky now. You called us a brood of vipers. You said we were going to hell. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. But who's in jail? Who's under a death sentence? It's not us. If God is so displeased with us, then why are we doing fine while you're battling with rats for scraps of food? Now this teaches us a principle of suffering to remember. Earthly circumstances are not an indicator of whether or not God is pleased with your life or an indicator of your eternal destiny. Earthly circumstances are not an indicator of whether or not God is pleased with your life or an indicator of your eternal destiny. But there's another truth that we see here, and some of you have experienced this. Suffering tends to stigmatize you. For example, when Job and his circumstances collapsed, three of his friends came. All three of them said he was being punished for his sin. Now, they didn't have any facts, but they just knew that. I mean, look at your life. This has to be the situation. So what you need to do, Job, is just confess and repent. And later, God told those three friends, my wrath is kindled against you. But they stigmatized Job because of his suffering. Have you been stigmatized? Now, let's admit one thing. Let's take a little, let's park off to the side for a minute. Much suffering is self-inflicted. You do reap what you sow. If you lack self-control, you'll suffer bodily. If you lack the self-discipline to be in God's word, you'll suffer spiritually. And friend, your sin never just affects you. It affects everyone around you. Your family, your friends, your church, your country. Your sin affects everyone. But the source of a great deal of our suffering is a mystery, and neither you nor I can fully understand why. I'm going to give you some examples. I read about a pastor who preached a sermon series on divine healing, and soon afterward he experienced health problems. Some people in the church said he was being punished for what he said in the sermons. Now, that's logic 101. I read about another pastor who was called to a different church, but before he arrived, he had a heart attack, and it delayed his arrival for several weeks. Some people in the church began to murmur and said, well, that's a divine sign. He's the wrong man for the church. That's logic 201. I read a story, and this one's all too common. After church one morning, a widow was asked by several friends to meet with them. They told her the reason her husband died from cancer was because she and her husband lacked faith. And one more story. This was by a person in a high-profile parachurch ministry several years ago. She was hospitalized for depression. She said co-workers said things to her such as, Do you know the damage you're doing to this ministry? I always knew you'd lose it someday. And you might never be special again. Now, I'm giving you these illustrations because I want you to connect with this. I know some of you have experienced similar things. The great revivalist Ron Dunn told of sitting in a Bible conference, and he said the preacher savagely denounced all forms of psychology. He said he waved his Bible in the air and he said, this is all you need. Dunn's oldest son had just committed suicide as a result of manic depression, and they had done everything in the world to try and help him. We don't ever want to be that kind of church. 
So those statements illustrate two things. Number one, a lack of empathy. Romans chapter 12 says we're to weep with those who weep. John says we're to love our brothers and sisters. Empathy means you're able to feel and care about how someone else is feeling. But you know what? That takes time to think about it and try to put yourself in someone else's shoes and realize you're not going to know every detail of their life. So here's what happens. I want to be really practical about this. Say someone is really suffering. They've had something really bad happen in their life. And so we don't know what to say to that person. So when we see that person at church, it's kind of like we do this. If we say the wrong thing, we're afraid they might melt down or it might make matters worse. So instead of loving them, we just ignore them. And believe me, that person feels that. So as long as you have a sincere concern for them, here are just some simple statements to say to someone who's suffering. I am so sorry about your situation. I'm praying for you and make sure that you are. Here's one. I love you. Or can I do something specific for you and be sure that you're ready to follow up? If you ask me that, I'm going to say something. <laughs> or... You don't always have to talk about it. But take time to think about what a person might be dealing with. Put yourself in their shoes and cut them some slack. Now, unfortunately, there's another side to this. Don't empathize with a person who is in open, blatant, unrepentant sin. And this happens too. And it results in people being abused. The bad actor is given comfort. The victims are ignored or blamed. These things are coming more and more to light in churches across our country. And it's because of this misplaced empathy. But there's not only a lack of empathy. Number two, these wounds come from believers who, let's just cut to the chase, they're filled with pride. As Ron Dunn put it, the stigma attached to suffering Christians by many fellow believers, is born not only out of ignorance, but out of spiritual pride and arrogance devoid of compassion and understanding. The natural man might say, well, look at John the Baptist. I mean, he should have done this different, and if he only would have done that, and now he's being judged by God. But the Bible says, among those born of women, which is everyone, despite what we're told today, among those born of women, I never thought I'd have to say that. <laughs> Among those born of women, no one is greater than John. Jesus said John was the greatest man who ever lived. Greater than Enoch who walked with God and he was not for God took him. Greater than Noah who was a righteous man, blameless in his time, Noah walked with God. Greater than Moses, the most humble man who ever lived. Greater than Esther, who said, if I perish, I perish. Greater than Job, who was fearing God, upright and turning away from evil. Greater than Solomon the wise. Greater than King David, from whose lineage the Lord Jesus would come. But here he is in Herod's prison. If you're suffering and you feel stigmatized, don't get upset. When people say well-meaning but hurtful things, most people mean well. There's a few who don't, but most people mean well. And understand that people who haven't suffered deeply will sometimes say things that are inappropriate, hurtful, and even judgmental. Or 
Some have suffered deeply, and they've allowed bitterness to control their life, and they say the wrong things. And then there's, we're all, I mean, it's a corny saying, but a hospital is, I mean, this is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. So we're not always going to say the right things. So what do you do if you're suffering and someone says something that's hurtful? Four simple things. Number one, let God take care of it. I mean, don't worry about it. If they said something with a wrong motivation, God will deal with them. You don't need to. Number two, this is the hardest. Recognize this is another way of keeping you humble. I mean, suffering humbles you enough, but God hates pride. So someone says something that is really wrong or hurtful, well, God, they don't even know the worst things about me, so thank God that you have grace on me. Number three, focus your attention on more important things, eternal things. I mean, just let's let it roll off your back. And therefore, number four, just move forward in your walk with Jesus. Don't let those things stop you. So we're talking about being victimized or stigmatized. And then number three, the trials of suffering can cause you to be demoralized. Look back in our original text, Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. John is doubting if Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, that's incredible. He had lived for Jesus his whole life. He had a miraculous birth. An angel told his mother that her baby would be the forerunner to the Messiah. The Bible says he was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was born. Yet this is where he ends up. And as a result of his circumstances, he wonders if his whole life has been wrong. So believers who walk closely with God will often suffer. And meanwhile, evil people will often prosper. They can be wicked, wealthy, and healthy. Psalm 73 addresses this very issue. A man named Asaph wrote that psalm. It's Psalm 73. I see some of you writing it down. He said, My feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Well, look at Herod. He was secular, godless, evil, prosperous, and untouchable. John was a simple man, a preacher of the word, obedient to God, and he was about to have his head separated from his body. There's something in the New Testament called the theology of reversal, especially in the book of Luke. He was... Last shall be first, he was first shall be last. In eternity, John is exalted, Herod is in eternal torment, but that reversal doesn't happen all that often in this life, and when we see that contrast, it can demoralize us. Some things just don't make sense to our finite mind. So John asked his disciples to ask Jesus a question. Look at verse 3. Are you the expected one? Or shall we look for someone else? That's one of the most incredible statements in Scripture. This is the man who was called to be the forerunner of the Messiah. After being absolutely certain about who Jesus is, behold, the Lamb of God, divinely ordained by God. Why would he ask that question? Well, here's why. The Bible says Jesus healed many people of diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits. He gave sight to the blind. He healed a Roman centurion's slave. They viewed Rome as the enemy. He cast demons out of people. He raised Lazarus from the dead, but John is about to become dead, and Jesus isn't doing anything about that, and doubt began to creep into his mind. 
Doubt and demoralization often go together. Jesus, are you the one? He's doubting who Jesus is. He's thinking, could it be that Jesus isn't delivering me because I got this whole thing wrong? Now, I want you to be encouraged about something. So I hope this makes sense. Faith presupposes doubt. Faith presupposes doubt. In other words, faith is not possible unless doubt is possible. Otherwise, I cancel it out. I'll give you a couple other examples. We can't have love unless we have free will. Otherwise, love would be force. We would have no choice. I love my wife with all my heart, but if I was forced to love her, it wouldn't be love. It'd be force. Love requires free will. Another example, there can be no good news without bad news. Otherwise, it's no news. The contrast has to be there. There can't be truth without error. So for faith to be possible, doubt has to be possible. We want our faith to be unwavering. But when you're demoralized, doubt can creep in. So what do you do if you're there this morning? Suffering has demoralized you. I want you to take three simple steps. Number one, be faithful. Even in the midst of suffering, be faithful to Jesus and his word no matter what. We face today overt or social pressure to silence the gospel, to make spiritual, to take spiritual truth and make it politically correct or socially palatable, to just trim the edges of our message. Just don't talk about things that go against the grain of our culture. But Jesus says, be faithful. As a pastor, we're supposed to preach the whole counsel of God. We're going to bring up topics that are pretty, that go against the grain of our culture. And the sun may be about to set on civilization as we know it. The hourglass looks pretty low on sand. In this moral chaos, faithfulness is a virtue that is being discarded. Psalm 12:1 says, For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. But faithfulness is a virtue that God loves. 1 Samuel 26, 23, The Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and faithfulness. Jesus told two faithful men, Well done, good and faithful servant. Luke said, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. Galatians chapter 5 says a fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. So be faithful. You can be faithful even in your suffering. Stay in the Word. That's the bread of life. Come to church. Invite people to church. Be involved in the Great Commission. Tell others about Jesus. You can do that. Walk out of here this morning saying, I'm going to be faithful to the Lord no matter what? Number two, don't define your life by your circumstances. Don't reach a conclusion about what God thinks about you based on your circumstances. Time always tells the truth. It takes a while, but time always tells the truth. Only eternity will reveal the truth. Don't define your life by your circumstances. Aside from John the Baptist, Herod decided to put two other men in prison. One was James and the other was Peter. Herod put James to death by the sword. Angels rescued Peter and he wrote two books of the Bible. Was Peter a good guy and God judging James? Well, we have a book in the Bible called James. Well, now, if that's the case, 
then why was Peter rescued and James wasn't? We don't know. But their lives weren't defined by their demise. Their lives were defined by this word, and so it is with you. There are many other examples of this. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 at least, more than 3,000 people were saved. Five chapters later, Stephen preached a sermon, and he was stoned to death. In Luke 13, Pontius Pilate slaughtered some Galileans, and the people were wondering why. So Jesus said, do you suppose all these Galileans were greater sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. Jesus knew they were wondering, but all he did was offer a warning. Do you remember a few years ago when Las Vegas was the scene of this gruesome shooting? I think somebody was shooting from a hotel down like on a, some kind of a concert below. You know, I read some things afterward. It was amazing the conclusions some people can reach. They said, well, that's God's wrath. Las Vegas is, so the strip there is Sin City, and it is. But if that was God's judgment, well, why didn't he go to the San Fernando Valley, which is the pornography capital of the world? Charles Spurgeon said, while you cannot trace the hand of God, you can certainly trust the heart of God. Don't define your life by your circumstances. And number three, and I hope this makes sense, I think it will, be at peace through the fear of God. Be at peace through the fear of God. The Bible tells a story of a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. It's in the book of Luke. And she knew that if she could just touch Jesus, she would be healed. So she pressed through this enormous crowd and somehow managed to touch his cloak, and immediately she was made well. Now, think of it. There's a crowd of people swarming around him. It's like if you exited a large stadium after a concert or a ball game. So undoubtedly, they're bumping into one another, but Jesus knew one person had touched him in a different way. So Mark 5, and he called her out. He said, who touched me? Mark 5.33 says, but the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Remember, this is in front of a huge crowd. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So before this huge crowd, he calls her out. She came to him fearing and trembling. And only then did he say, go in peace. The fear of God and the peace of God go together. How so? The fear of God brings us to him. It doesn't make us run from him. It makes us go to him. The fear of God often happens through suffering. We're afraid of what is happening. We know he's the only source of healing and hope, so we're drawn to him in our pain. You come to him with a healthy fear, confessing and believing that he is Lord. You fear him as the almighty God and you lean into him in your suffering. You know that in his power, he's going to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil and someday take you safely home. And that healthy fear of God gives you the peace of God. Now, this may not make sense yet, but every one of you, I would wager in this building, Every one of you have sung this truth. You sung it many times, as a matter of fact. John Newton, the former slave trader, wrote Amazing Grace. 
"'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears what? Relieved. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." God's grace taught your heart to fear God. It's God's grace that brought you face to face with your sin and the awful eternal, uh, eternal penalty of sin. It was also God's grace that taught you that Jesus died for your sins and that by faith your sins can be forgiven and your fears relieved by surrendering your life to Jesus. That cycle repeats itself. You're not saved again. You're only saved once. But that cycle repeats itself in suffering. The fear of God brings you to God and the grace of God relieves that fear fear even in suffering you know it's going to work out for your good and his glory and we recognize that Jesus is the one who suffered for you Jesus was victimized he never sinned he never did anything but bless people he never deserved one bit of suffering but he endured the elements of hell on the cross for us and he took the wrath of God for us he was victimized but he was also stigmatized on the cross, not in the Catholic sense. I'm not talking about the stigmata if you have the Catholic background. He was stigmatized in the sense he was publicly humiliated. I mean, stripped naked and nailed to a cross. In his life, he was an outsider who gathered with tax collectors and lepers, people who were stigmatized in that culture. He defied who most people wanted him to be. Praise God, he was who he came to be. The Son of Man, the Son of God, died and risen for our sins. So whether you're suffering or whether you're not today, if you've never been saved, if you're not sure that your eternal destiny is heaven because of faith, and you sense Jesus drawing yourself to him, then don't delay. He is God and we are not. He, if he's working in your heart, the old saying is, strike while the iron is hot. The Lord will not trifle with man forever. The fact that he's drawing you to himself is evidence that he loves you. So to be saved, you simply believe on the Lord Jesus right now, right where you sit. It's simply a decision. I believe. My faith and trust is in you. But before you do that, understand that Christianity is all or nothing. Many of you have heard this, but I remember so clearly when I was not saved and the Holy Spirit was convicting me, I came to the conclusion, well, either the resurrection is true or not. And if Jesus of Nazareth walked the face of this earth and said, three days later, I'm going to rise again. If that happened, then it behooves anyone with any sense of rationality to completely center their life on him and his teaching. And if it didn't happen, then this is the greatest hoax ever perpetrated in the history of humanity, but it's all or nothing. Either Jesus is Lord and we devote our life to him and his word, or he is not Lord and he should be rejected altogether. Folks, there's no middle ground. Now, if you are not sure about this, we would love the opportunity to help you with this. Scan that QR code in front of you. You'll see some options there. Fill it out and we'll be in touch with you tomorrow. Complete that card, put it in the basket at the back of the worship center. You can talk to Nathan, Kirk, or myself before you leave. You may want to talk to someone here that you know before you leave. But don't leave until you have 
absolute certainty that you're saved and you're saved by grace through faith. It's the gift of God, not of works. That's what I want you to hear. You're not a good person who's going to go to heaven. You're not saved by works. You're saved by grace through faith. It's the gift of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word.